Good evening. Tonight, our Bible reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. So before this has happened, the wise men from the east have come to worship him who was born king of the Jews. They seek out Herod, who asks them to find him when they have found the child. They do find the Christ child and they present their gifts and worship him, but being warned of God, they avoid Herod and return to their own land by another route, which is where we find ourselves in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that, the, that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Thanks, Patrick, and good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you this Christmas. Special welcome to those who are visiting with us. It's wonderful to, to have you here tonight for our late-night Christmas Eve service. Um, the other day, I was having a look through a list of the, the top 30 podcasts, most downloaded podcasts in Australia, and I counted that 12 of the top 30 were true crime podcasts, which it, it says something, doesn't it, about the, the fascination that we have with evil. And I wonder, is that perhaps why Matthew includes all these events about King Herod so prominently in his gospel account? Is it to give a bit more drama to the Christmas story? Apart from being shocked by, by the events that we've read in that passage, what can we learn from the role that Herod plays here? What, what is there to learn? Because I've got to say, if anything, reading through that, it, it feels like Herod is the one calling the shots, he's the one in control. Or at least that God is having to, to constantly react to what Herod does to save Jesus. And if that's true, then 
there's not really a whole lot of significance in the escape to Egypt or the resettling in Nazareth that we read about. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they're just another family of refugees, like millions since, nothing, nothing unique. And the heartless slaughter of children that we read about is nothing more than a pointless tragedy, like so many more since. What we'll find, though, is that despite appearances, this journey, this relocation, and this tragedy in the middle of it all, they're not pointless. But they're part of God's purposes. Herod's violent and heartless opposition to Jesus, it shows us both God's sovereign control of the situation and also our need for a better king. And so firstly, we begin with the journey, which happens because King Herod is searching for this child Jesus to kill him. Now, a bit of background information here. Herod wasn't a rightful descendant to Israel's throne. In fact, Herod was only half Jewish. He wasn't a proper Israelite at all. He was king over Israel by some sort of political compromise that he'd made. He was a a puppet of the Roman Empire. They were using him to, to control the people. What we know about Herod was that he was an extremely cruel and savage man. It comes out pretty clearly in the passage that we just read. Uh, He murdered several of his own family members and and many other people out of a fear that they would undermine him and threaten his power. So Herod was a king who held to his kingship with violence and oppression. Uh, Now, he knew that the Jewish scriptures told of a king who would one day come from the line of David, a descendant from King David. So not not a king like Herod, who was established by Rome, but but one who would descend from David. Uh, The Magi have have come to him, as as Patrick explained, and, and they've come seeing visions of one who was born king of the Jews, uh, which seems to line up pretty well with what the prophets said in the Old Testament, what they had written about. Now, can you see, this this is a threat to Herod hearing this. Because as far as Herod was concerned, he was the king of the Jews. There wasn't room for another king. Herod was the only king. And so any challenger to the throne had to be dealt with severely, no matter how young they were. And so Joseph, who's been warned by God in a dream, he, he takes Mary, he takes baby Jesus, and they flee to Egypt and they wait for Herod to die. Now, we might be longing for international travel after a couple of years of COVID, but for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, it was life or death. They had to get out of there. Now, reading it, it might seem a bit of an anticlimactic way for a king to to make his entrance onto the scene, having to hide and, and run away from another king. But... Matthew wants us to see that this is all part of God's plan all along. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. And to prove that, he takes us to, to, in verse 15 there, to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which was written about eight centuries earlier. Hosea writes, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is God speaking about his people Israel, so that the nation of Israel, and, and he's recalling how he rescued them from slavery in Egypt back in Moses' day. 
And we might be thinking, well, well, hang on a minute. How is Mary and Joseph's escape to Egypt a fulfillment of this? Hosea was talking about something that happened in the past, not the future. And he's talking about a whole nation, not, not just one family. The only connection here seems to be Egypt. So what's going on here? What's going on? Well, what we're seeing is that God is recreating Israel's history in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus, he's what Israel failed to be, God's perfectly obedient son. Like Israel, God's son Jesus will be called out of Egypt. Like Israel, he'll face temptation to sin. But unlike Israel, Jesus will resist that temptation. In fact, in the very next verse of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 2, we're reminded of what happened after God called Israel out of Egypt. The more they were called, God says, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burnt incense to images. Israel was a disobedient, unfaithful son. And yet, God remains a loving and faithful father. A few verses later on, Hosea, in in Hosea, God exclaims, how can I give you up, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger against you. And so, because God loved his people Israel so much, he sent his perfect son, Jesus, to be who Israel could never be, to be who we could never be. And it would be through this son that God would rescue his beloved but wayward people. And so the journey to and from Egypt is anything but pointless because it sets the scene for who Jesus is. God's son walking in Israel's footsteps, being who Israel failed to be. But what about the relocation to Galilee in the final verses there? What's the significance of that? Um, After some time in Egypt, um, we read that an angel appears to Joseph telling him that Herod is dead and that they can return back home to Israel. But, verse 22, when they return to Egypt, they find that Herod's kingdom has been split into three parts. It's been divided by three of Herod's sons. And Judea, the the region where they had lived before, that's now being ruled by Archelaus, the, the most violent of Herod's three sons. And so it's no surprise that Joseph is afraid. Again, he receives a warning in a dream, this time to relocate to a safer region called Galilee and into a town called Nazareth within Galilee. And once more, Matthew sees this not just as an event that took place, but it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He writes there, So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we run into a few problems here because there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says anything about the Messiah being called a Nazarene or or having anything to do with Nazareth at all. But I think what's going on here is that we're not seeing one particular prophecy being fulfilled, but rather we're seeing the essence of a, a number of prophecies being fulfilled. 
I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, so you've got two regions that we're talking about here. We've got Galilee, where, um, where Nazareth is, and we've got Judea, where Bethlehem is, and they've moved from Judea to Galilee. These are, these are two different regions in Israel. And people, people who lived in Judea tended to look down on people who lived in Galilee. Now, if you've read John's Gospel, you might remember that Nathaniel, one of, one of Jesus' disciples, asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that seems to have been a bit of a, bit of a common question that was asked, a common attitude that people had in that day. Nazareth's just a, not quite as good a place. Uh, people, people from Galilee, they, they had a bit of a different accent. They, they talked a little bit funny, and there was the perception that they were a bit more influenced by the cultures around them, and they, they didn't stick to Judaism as much as they should have. And so to be called a Nazarene is well, it's a, bit of a, a bit of a mark of shame, really. Um, to put this in language that we can understand, and I hope I'm not going to offend anyone when I say this, but um, you can probably see where I'm going with this. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a lot like how people in some of the nicer parts of Adelaide might have less than flattering stereotypes of what people who live in a suburb like Elizabeth might be. You know, you, you, you mention the names of certain suburbs and, and we have certain stereotypes that, that pop into our minds, don't we? And, you know, to put it on the other foot, it's probably the exact same way that people in Sydney think about people in Adelaide, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not shortchanging myself there. Um, in the same way, just to say that someone was a Nazarene in that day, it would create a certain picture in people's minds, wouldn't it? It was, it was something of a mark of shame. And it lines up with what the Old Testament prophets wrote about the unimpressive appearance of the Messiah. Um, Isaiah 53 comes to mind. It's probably the, the most famous one of these prophecies. Isaiah writes that there was nothing in his appearance, nothing in the Messiah's appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. We held him in low esteem. So we see that both the escape to Egypt, the return from Egypt, and the, the resettling in Nazareth, they show us that God is in control, that he's one step ahead of Herod, protecting his son. But even more than that, though, they show us that he's fulfilling scripture. He's bringing about the fulfillment of his word. Words that he gave to his people centuries and centuries earlier, knowing even then what his son was going to come and accomplish. And he can work through the actions of an evil king to make that happen. See, God isn't just eluding Herod. God is using Herod to bring about his purposes. Which brings us to the horrific events of verses 16 to 18, which, which we skipped over momentarily. Herod wants baby Jesus dead at any cost, and so he orders for every boy around Jesus' age in, in the Bethlehem region to be slaughtered. This is awful. It's, it's unimaginable, really. I, I'm the, the dad of a boy who's right in the middle of that zero to two age range, and, and just the thought of it unsettles me really deeply reading it. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a big city or anything like that. The, um, the estimates are that there were probably 
20 or so children killed during this, but um, that's, that's 20 too many. It's, it's a tragedy. It's not an event that we have detailed historical accounts of just because of the, the small size of the town and the, the fact that Herod did things like this much too often. Um, but it's thoroughly in line with what we know about Herod, both from what we read about him in the Bible and also what we know about him from, from secular sources around that time. This was a man whose jealousy made him capable of killing his own sons. He was certainly capable of killing other people's sons. And once again, there's Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled here. Uh, In verses 17 to 18, Matthew quotes this time from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel, we read about her in the book of Genesis in the Bible, right near the start of the Bible. She's one of Jacob's wives. Jacob is one of Abraham's grandchildren. Rachel died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and Ramah was the name of the place that she was buried. Ramah was also on the route centuries later where the Babylonian army would lead the captive Israelites out of their land into exile. So right past Rachel's tomb. And Jeremiah, as he writes these things, he he has this mental image of Rachel weeping as she watches her children being taken into exile. And 600 years later, Rachel is weeping as more of her children are cruelly slaughtered by a rogue king. And so the, the slaughter of these innocent children is meant to remind us of the exile all those years earlier. They're both tied up with the same prophecy that Jeremiah made. What's the connection? Well, sin has brought about both of these tragedies. But also, there's hope in the darkness. Sin has caused it, but there's hope in the darkness. The exile was God handing his people over to their sinful ways. He says to them, you want to live without me? Okay, then. I'll remove my blessing from you. I'll give you over to my judgment. I'll send you into exile with your enemies. And in the same way, the the heartless deaths of these little ones, it confronts us with the reality of sin. Not the sin of the children, not the sin of their parents, but the world as a whole. See, what sort of world is it where a powerful king can order for innocent children to be slaughtered with no opposition and no accountability? A pretty messed up world, I'd say. A broken world in desperate need of healing. You might be here tonight just, just checking church out, perhaps visiting with the family for Christmas, perhaps church isn't something you'd normally do, and, and perhaps you think to yourself, I'm fine without God. I don't need him. I'm doing well without him. Well, Matthew, as he writes about these events, he wants to confront that thought head on. Fine without God? Really? This is what happens in a world that rejects God, he's saying. Power will be grossly abused. People will suffer greatly. 
things will get worse, not better. There's shocking evil, injustice, brokenness and suffering in our world today, just as there was back in Jesus' day. We all know it. We all live with that reality. It touches us all in various ways. This tragedy that we read about here, it it opens up our eyes to the evils of this broken world. And it shows us our need for a better king, one who will rule fairly, without corruption, one who will hold to his kingship, not with violence and oppression, but with gentleness and self-sacrifice. So these events give us a reality check, but they also give us hope. Because the Jeremiah verse that Matthew quotes from, it comes at a bit of a turning point of the book. So Jeremiah, up to that point, it's been all about Israel's sin and, and God's judgment. But then just a few verses later, God declares, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. It won't be like the covenant that, that they broke. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. They'll all know me. I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So even in a time of deep mourning and hopelessness, as God's people were led into exile, the the humiliation, there was still hope. Even in Bethlehem, on that tragic night, as families grieved their loss, there was hope. It looks like nothing more than yet another tragedy under Herod's cruel reign. But again, we we see that God is in control. God is making a way for his people to come into a perfect relationship with him by sending one who will not just be king of the Jews, he'll be king of kings, lord of lords, a king who will not destroy lives to protect his throne like Herod did, but a king who came down from his heavenly throne, lived as a man, gave up his own life so that we could be with him in glory under his perfect kingship. One who will rule with perfect righteousness forever. The slaughter of so many innocent children was an unspeakable, inhumane act. Even even 2,000 years later, as we read about it, we shudder. But there was an infinitely worse crime to come, and that was the slaughter of the perfectly innocent Son of God, Jesus. And yet, through the greatest tragedy, the greatest injustice ever in human history, came the greatest thing that could ever be achieved, the salvation of sinful people. A way, in fact, the only possible way for you and for I to come into a relationship with God. Maybe you've been confronted this year by the darkness of the world. Perhaps you've seen it on the news, or or maybe it's hit home closer to you. Maybe it's been really close and personal. Uh, Maybe it's been injustices that have happened. Maybe it's just been the brokenness and the suffering that we see around us. In the very darkest of times, 
God is crying out to us to see the world for what it is, broken by sin, in desperate need of a better king. God is growing in us a longing for Jesus, who is that better king. In the worst of it, God is still in control. He's working his good purposes to to fulfillment. And that's the good news that we celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news of Christmas. Thank you that even in the darkest times, we have hope because Jesus came, perfect God, perfect man. He lived as one of us. We praise you that even a tragic event like the ones that we've read about tonight with the slaughter of these innocent children, thank you that you are still working through your purposes. Thank you that when evil seems to reign and that when the brokenness of the world seems to go unchecked, that we can trust that you are in control. We pray that that would be real for us. And then in the darkest times that each one of us here need to face, that we would face it knowing that you're in control, knowing that you work through evil for good, and knowing that because Jesus has come, we have a hope that can never fade. May that be real for us all this Christmas. Amen.